You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Timothy chapter 2. Tonight we're going to begin starting at verse 8. And uh, one of the things that I love about teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is I found after doing it through many years that you don't have to seek for controversial subjects to teach on. Because if you teach uh, faithfully chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the controversial subjects will just find you all on their own. And tonight, I'm going to teach on a subject that, at least in our day and age, is a matter of controversy. I reflected that on previous generations, this might not be such a matter of controversy, but it certainly is in our present day and age. And instead of sort of discussing of what the controversy is beforehand, I'll just get right into the text. But I do want you to know that, in general, my teaching boy for you this here this evening will have three main aspects. First of all, I'm going to talk about what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. We're just going to go through the text and discuss that, which is obviously the most important thing we can do here together. But then secondly, I want to discuss at least briefly how the teaching and the truth of 1 Timothy chapter 2 fits in with the rest of the Bible's teaching about men and women and their roles in God's work. And then finally, I want to talk about answering what I would consider to be modern objections to what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So let's begin just with a focus upon the text. Again, this is our most important focus. What does the text say? This is what we're interested in. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Now, if you compared my teaching this week to last Wednesday night, you'll notice that I'm overlapping just a bit. And so the first couple verses, verses 8 and 9, I'm going to go over very quickly, but I just want to discuss them a little bit to give us a little sense of the context, because I think that's important. Verse 8, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are not just the musings of an old man, this was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit directed the Apostle Paul to write, verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, Paul is saying something very specific here in verse 8. First of all, he's talking about something that he wants done in every church. That's the sense of the words there in verse 8, that the men pray everywhere. In other words, uh, one commentator named White says this, the directions are to apply to every church without exception. No allowance is to be made for the conditions peculiar to any locality. That's the sense behind the original wording of everywhere. This is a broad, comprehensive statement for how Paul thinks conduct should be carried out when God's people come together in meetings. And what is it? That the men pray everywhere. Now, the ancient Jews often would describe their coming together uh, in worship services as coming together to pray. That was just kind of the shorthand. We might say, I'm going to Sunday for church. I'm going to a worship service. They would say, we're gathering for prayer. What, What Paul's indication here, again, it's pretty clear, He wants men to lead the gatherings, the congregational gatherings of God's people when they come together. 
This isn't a way of saying, uh, listen, I want men to pray everywhere. Put a man on every corner. One out on the corner of State Street. Another one on the corner of Garden Street. Another one on the corner of Jan and Elian. They'll get everybody. No, no, that's not the idea. The idea is wherever God's people gather together as a congregation, as the body of Christ, not necessarily a a home Bible study or a sub-meeting of God's people, but the congregational gathering God's people that the men should lead. Paul assumed that men would take the lead at the meetings of the congregation. And the lifting up the hands was a common posture of prayer in the ancient culture. So this speaks of men leading public prayer, representing God's people before God's throne. Again, this commentator White translates the idea of the text. He says, quote, The ministers of public prayer must be the men of the congregation, not the women. That's just the sense of the text here. Now, verses 9 and 10. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So after speaking a general word about the meetings of God's people and and who should take the leadership and the responsibility there, he says, and this is something that I want women to consider in the gathering together of people. I don't think that this was necessarily Paul's greatest priority upon women gathering together. I mean, his greatest priority is a list a little bit indicated by verses 9 and 10, and it's that simple idea that they should come together with the idea of godliness with good works. That's the most important adornment for any woman. The most important adornment, it's not the jewelry that you wear, it's not the makeup you put on, it's not the way that you style your hair, it's godliness with good works. I almost said with good looks, but it almost came out right there, which would kind of go right against what Paul was saying, but you get the idea, I did correct myself, until I just, well, you get the idea here. This is Paul's edu- uh, emphasis here. Uh, l- ladies, ladies, you, of cor- are you welcome at Congress? Of course you are. When you come, this is one thing for you to keep in mind. Again, I, I don't think for a moment Paul would say this is the only thing relevant to women. Women, don't worry about prayer. Don't worry about bringing your Bible. Don't worry about anything else. J- just make sure you're not overdressed. No, that's not the idea. But again, Paul's just addressing this one particular idea that women should dress with propriety and moderation when the church gets together. Now, for verses 11 through 15, which some people regard as a problem passage. I, I want you to know, I don't particularly regard it as a problem passage. Although, let me make an exception to that. Verse 15 is a bit of a problem. Just as an expositor, it's a little bit difficult to understand what Paul's getting at in verse 15. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but the passage in general, I think Paul's pretty clear in what he's saying. All of it, and this is why I emphasize verses 8, 9, and 10. It's in the context of congregational gatherings. In that context, now starting at verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What we want to do is take this apart 
piece by piece and just simply examine it, beginning with verses 11 and 12. Let me read you again verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Let me begin by saying that I believe that the translation that I have in, me, in front of me right here, the New King James translation, which by the way, let me say, it's my preferred translation. I don't think it's a perfect translation, but I think it's solid. I think it's good. And for a variety of reasons, it's the one I prefer. But, but again, I believe that this particular line translated in the New King translation is translated in an unfortunate way. Where Paul wrote there, let a woman learn in silence. I think that's a bad translation. The very same ancient Greek word is translated in verse 2. Just look up your chapter to verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. That very same ancient Greek word is translated um, peaceable. It's the same word. The idea is without contention, without vocal objection. This is not a command to women that as soon as you step through the doors of the church, shut up, don't say a word. That's not the idea at all. The idea instead is that they're to be peaceable without contention. In other places in the New Testament, even in the writings of Paul, Women are specifically mentioned as praying and speaking in the church under certain circumstances. In particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, especially at verse 5. It speaks of women praying or prophesying in the church if they wear a head covering. Now, brothers and sisters, it's not my intention tonight to go off on the whole idea of a head covering but I can summarize it very quickly. The entire idea of a head covering in the Corinthian and the ancient culture, it was an expression of saying, I am under authority. That's why a woman would wear a head covering. The principle is under authority. The expression of the principle in Corinthian culture was to wear a head covering. Wearing a head covering in our culture does not have the same expression. When you see a woman in a church meeting with a distinct head covering, you don't say, wow, she's under authority. You say, wow, you might say that's a nice head covering, it's a goofy head covering. You say, but that's a head covering. It doesn't have the same cultural connotation. Please catch me on this. The principle is to be throughout all generations of God's people. The way the principle is expressed may differ from culture to culture, generation to generation. So Paul isn't describing a a hat that a woman must wear and then just, okay, but that the woman must be under authority and under certain circumstances, if a woman is under the authority that God has appointed in the church, that it would be permissible for her to pray or to prophesy. Now, If Paul said that that was okay in 1 Corinthians 11, and again, I'm thinking specifically of verse 5, but it's in other places in that chapter as well. If Paul said that specifically, then it gives even more credence that when he says peaceably, I'll just read it again, let a woman learn peaceably with all submission. 
The idea isn't silence and shutting up. Now, submission is the principle described in verse 11. Learning in a peaceable way, a non-contentious way, that describes the application of the principle. Now, it's very possible as well, and I'm going to be straight with you, as a expositor, as someone who's very interested in, in sometimes the cultural and the historical connections of God's word, I don't know entirely how much to make of this dynamic I'm about to describe to you. But in the ancient world, especially among the ancient Jews, when the congregation would gather, men and women would sit on different sides of the synagogue or the building. They would have, and, and I couldn't tell you which one was which, but just for example, they would have all, all the, uh, the, the, the men over to the speaker's right and all the women over to the speaker's left. And again, it might be reversed, but you get the idea. They were separated. There are some people who think that was Paul is really instructing here, and they would connect it to a similar idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is what Paul was prohibiting was women interrupting the message, shouting out questions, objections, or anything like that. And that they should be quiet about those, and as Paul would instruct later on in 1 Corinthians, that they should ask their own husbands at home about such things. That is a definite possibility. I, I, I can't say that I can teach that to you as an as a absolute yes. I know exactly that's behind Paul's thinking. But whether in the Ephesian churches, which again was not one congregation, but many congregations over an entire region, Paul said that women should recognize the, the, the male leadership, that they should not lead in the prayers and that they shouldn't be contentious about the teaching. They should, as he says there, show the submission of being peaceable. So that's the idea there in that first phrase. But notice this in verse 11 when he says that they should do it with all submission. Friends, this is an important concept for us to grab onto. That word for submission is the familiar word in the New Testament for submission or to submit. It has a military origin. It literally means, in a military sense, to be under rank. And again, I've never been in the military service. God bless you, those of us who have served our nation or even other nations with your military service. That's a wonderful thing. It's, it's, a, it's a great benefit to our society, to our culture. We thank you for that. But having never served, I mean, I, I just know about this from the outside, but from what I understand in the military... There's all different ranks of officers and enlisted men. And the ranking is pretty important. That, that certain um, obedience, certain obligation, certain respect is due to officers above you in the chain of command. And it has nothing to do with their personal character. It has nothing to do necessarily with their intelligence. There's many an enlisted man who thinks he's smarter than the general. But still, he has to snap to a smart salute and do as he's commanded to. Why? Because there must be proper submission coming under rank. Now, what do I mean? I don't mean for that in a moment that it's the job of the women to give a snappy salute to the male leadership of the church. Not that at all. But what I'm saying is that it has to do with God's order of authority. It has nothing to do, for example, with who are the smartest people. Not necessarily with who are the most gifted people. Who are the most spiritual people. 
But God says, I've established an order of authority and submission recognizes that order of authority. Warren Wearsby speaks to this very well. Let me read you a quote from him. Quote, anyone who has served in the armed forces know that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. That's why following verse 11, Paul says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Paul's meaning here seems clear. And by the way, In verse 12, I don't believe he's saying two different things. I don't permit a woman to teach, and then now let me say something different, or to have authority over a man. No, he's speaking in the context of congregational life that a woman should not have the role of teaching authority in the church. Paul is saying here that the church should not recognize women as those having authority in the church regarding matters of doctrine and scriptural interpretation. In my mind, it just seems pretty clear and logical from Paul's whole train of thought that this is what he's saying. But however, let me say, I think it's very important for us to recognize what he's not saying. When I take a look at the scriptures in their entirety... I see nowhere taught. Let me say this with emphasis. I see nowhere taught a general submission of women unto men. In other words, women in general must submit to men in general. I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. I see in the scriptures that in two institutions, God has ordained male leadership. Those two institutions are the home and the church. And doesn't it make perfect sense that God would make an alignment between those two institutions? In the home and in the church, God has ordained male leadership. He hasn't commanded male leadership in the fields of politics, economics, education, you know, engineering, on, on, and on, and on, and on. I don't see any scriptural prohibition whatsoever to a a woman politician or president. Matter of fact, I got to say, when I was a younger man, one of the things that uh, my wife and I really got a kick out of one occasion was we got to go to the House of Commons, sit in on question hour when Margaret Thatcher was answering questions from the opposition party in the uh, Houses of Parliament. And man, it was a thrill. Margaret Thatcher was a remarkable and I believe strategic in what God was doing in the world at that time. And there was no scriptural reason whatsoever that somebody would say, well, Margaret Thatcher, you shouldn't be prime minister of the United Kingdom. That's nonsense. But in two fields, God has ordained male leadership, again, in the home and in the church. Now, when we say this, And when we say how it applies to congregational life, that a woman should not have a position of teaching authority in the church, we we come to recognize that not all speaking or teaching by a woman is necessarily a violation of God's order of authority in the church. 
Whatever speaking or teaching is done by a woman should be done in submission to the men that God has chosen to lead that congregation. And when you start thinking about how that principle applies practically in a congregation, I'll tell you what, sometimes it can get a little difficult. In other words, you may find Christians that agree on that principle, but there may be disagreement to the specific ways that it works out. In other words, uh, may a woman teach a woman's Bible study? Most believers say, yes, no problem with that. She's not usurping authority in any kind of doctrinal teaching sense over the church in general. May a woman teach a Sunday school class of first grade boys and girls. Well, most people would say yes and praise the Lord for those who do and do it so well, especially in our congregation. And again, I think rightly so. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody's saying, uh, get, get all the young boys out of her class. She's exercising authority over men. No, nobody says that. And nobody should, I believe. But as you continue going, you can see where there might be some disagreement somewhere at some point along the way. May a woman teach a Sunday school class of middle school boys and girls. May a woman teach a Sunday school class of high school boys and girls. May a woman teach a Sunday school class of college-age boys and girls. I think you can see, without me pronouncing an absolute yes or no, there could be some legitimate disagreement. Again, agreeing on the principle, but having a little bit different opinion as to exactly where that line is drawn. But then it gets even more problematic. May a woman teach a one-off midweek evening service. Or if you want to go even further down the level of continuity, may a woman teach a one-off Sunday morning service. Again, what I'm trying to stress here is that believers can agree on the principle but have some disagreement as to how exactly that principle works out. And let me give you an example of how this can get complicated. Pastor Chuck Smith famously had at least once Corey Ten Boom speak on a Sunday morning to his church, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And it was of some controversy when he did it. There were some people not pleased by that. But Pastor Chuck, I guess, said, this is Corey Ten Boom. She's going to speak at the church. And she spoke at least once, maybe more, uh, on a Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Now, again, did that mean that Chuck Smith didn't believe in the principle? That Chuck Smith said, no, women shouldn't be pastors, women shouldn't regulate? No, of course he believed in that. Look at his entire ministry there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. But apparently he thought that that one exception was okay. Chuck Smith approved of women speaking in general sessions to Calvary Chapel missionary conferences. I know because I went to some of them when Pastor Chuck was still there and there were times when women would speak to a conference in a general session. Chuck Smith had a Chinese church leader named Mama Kwan speak to Calvary Chapel pastors at a Calvary Chapel pastors conference in the 1980s. I know this because I was there. I have vivid memories of this. We were up at Twin Peaks there in the opportunity, uh, there in the auditorium, I should say. And, and this, this tall Chinese woman of sort of regal bearing came and she was a house church leader of some 
renown in China. And she came and talked about what God was doing there. And I can't exactly say that she preached a message, but she shared something from the scriptures and she exhorted the pastors and she was presented to the gathered pastors. Now, I'm just saying that to say this. Chuck Smith very much believed that the teaching authority of the church was the role of qualified and called men, not women. Those exceptions, rare as they were, did not seem to disturb him or disqualify the principle in his mind. I would put it to you this way. From my reading of both this 1 Timothy 2 text and in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, I see the principle in a strong and clear way. Women are always to act under authority in the congregation demonstrated in Corinthian culture by the wearing of a head covering. And in the Ephesian culture, by especially not contesting or, or debating or, or, or just learning, in the affirmative, learning with a quiet and submissive spirit in the church meetings. Therefore, a woman in the Corinthian church could only pray or prophesy if she demonstrated that she was under the leadership of the church by the head covering. And she would demonstrate it that way. Now, um, Again, I see this working out in a church culture in a not very difficult way. God has called men to be the pastors and doctrinal authorities in the church. There is rich and necessary and fertile ground for women to serve and glorify God in the ministry but not in the leadership in particular, in the doctrinal leadership of the church. And I would define that, that the definition may differ a little bit from time to time and culture to culture, but in our present age, I would say to define that as pastors and elders. I would say this, and I'll speak just from my own perspective here, take it for what it's worth. I believe that one special danger in this regard is having the pastor's wife substitute for him in the pulpit. You see, I want to make this clear. The pastor's wife is not just another woman in the church. No way. You see, her husband's role is more than a job. You you don't expect any particular, you know, place around the doctor's wife or the lawyer's wife or anything else. But a pastor's wife is different. Because with the pastor's wife, her husband's work is more than a job. It's a calling. And because it's a calling, it's something that she shares in, at least in a special partnership in their marriage. But she isn't the pastor. And in my opinion, she shouldn't stand in in the pulpit For the pastor in any way that would say this, I'm here as a substitute for my husband's pastoral authority. See, I think that's exactly the wrong message to say. That's a bad message. Nevertheless, even though I think there can be exceptions that don't dishonor the principle of men taking the role of, of pastoral and doctrinal authority in the church, I've kind of given the two exceptions that come to my mind 
uh, two names, and these are just names I'll throw out. They're of my own creation. The first thing I would call it is I call it the Corey Ten Boom exception. You know, a one-off presentation by a remarkable woman in that she's not contesting doctrinal points and she's done at the invitation and the proper authority of the church leadership. That, that, that just seems to me, it's, it's a one-off exception. It, it's not a taking of doctrinal authority or spiritual leadership in the church. The other exception I would say, I would call it the pioneer missionary exception. Look, if there's nobody else to do the teaching then we can accept that it's a less than ideal situation and do what we can, all the while working towards the ideal. I mean, somebody likes to paint the scenario, and I I assume it's happened more than once. I assume it's happening somewhere in the world at this time, where there's a place that's so devoid of any kind of biblical teaching that there's just nobody to teach the Bible except this woman who's come from the outside to come and do And there's just no qualified men to do it at all. Well, I think, look, there's lots of situations in the scriptures where when you can't do the ideal, you do what you can and work towards the ideal. Let me give you an example of that that goes back to the like, early days of the Jesus movement. In the early days of the Jesus movement, when so many young people were coming to the Lord so fast and they needed some kind of structure, some kind of leadership. There's many famous stories of, you know, the, here's this collection of guys. Okay, we're going to make you three guys elders. Why? Well, because you've been believers for six months, and everybody else have only been believers for two months. Now, would you normally make guys who have been believers six months elders? No, you'd never do that. But listen, there are some situations where you just do the best you can under the present circumstances, and then work towards the ideal. Now, I think that there may be situations on the mission field where that's exactly what one does. Look, it's not ideal, but you work towards the ideal and do the best you can in the moment. But again, notice the focus here in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. In this clear chain of authority that God has established in both the home and the church, In those spheres, God has ordained that men are the head. That qualified and called men are to have the place of authority in the church. And as I said before, I'll repeat it again. The Bible is specific that there is no general submission of women unto men commanded in society. And it also does not mean this. That every woman in the church is under the authority of every man in the church. What, are you kidding me? Like just, it, any man in the church has the authority to go up to any woman in the church and say, well, I think you should do this or this. Look, oftentimes the woman would have every right to say, get lost, mister, I don't know who you are. No, we're not talking about some general submission of women unto men. What we're talking about is God saying, In the leadership of the church, elders, pastors, those entrusted with the doctrinal health and authority of the church, they are to be men and that is to be respected. The other thing that needs to be stressed is this. Nobody should think for a moment that simply being male means you're qualified for leadership in the church. Are you kidding me? No. Being male isn't the qualification for leadership. There's very specific spiritual and character qualifications for leadership. And we're going to talk about those on next Wednesday. 
But no, 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 it's, it, it's very clear that this isn't just a matter of men in general are qualified. No, no. And, and we need to point out this very strongly. The greatest hindrance to carrying out God's order of authority. I don't think it comes from those who are to submit to God's order of authority. I think the greatest threat comes from those who do not lead the way that Jesus would have them lead. That has been a chief cause of rejection of male authority and it is inexcusable. When men use their position of authority to lord it over, to demand that others serve them instead of being the servants of all, when they're abusive and fail to protect, this is a great shame upon God's church. And it does more to discredit God's order of authority than an unsubmissive action does. The greatest danger to God's appointed authority is the abuse or the misuse of that authority. Now, before I move on to verse 13, let me say this last. Some feel that recognizing God's order of authority and submitting to God's order of authority is an unbearable burden. It means that this is what I have to say. If I have to submit to God's order of authority in the home or in the church, then it means I'm inferior. I'm nothing. I have no um, um, uh, recognition, and I have to recognize this other person as being superior. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you again. Inferiority or superiority has nothing to do with this. And one of the greatest illustrations of this is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. During the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was no less God than God the Father, but he willingly submitted to and came under the order of authority of God the Father. The idea that to be under authority makes a person inferior or degrades them, that is a very worldly and fleshly way to think about power and authority. It's not a godly way of thinking at all. Now, I believe that in verses 11 and 12, Paul has stated the principle clearly. Maybe, in fact, a little bit too clearly for some people. That's why they consider it to be a problem passage. But I think verses 13 and 14 are also fascinating. Because here in verses 13 and 14, Paul's going to give us two reasons for God's order of authority. Isn't that interesting that he gives us the reasons? Now I want you, as we take a look at verses in 13 and 14, to look carefully at these reasons. Because let me tell you, Paul's reasons are not because I'm a chauvinistic misogynist, Paul would say. That's why I say that. No, that's not the reason why. Paul doesn't say, well, it's because um, men are wonderful and girls are icky. No, it's not because of that. It's not because, well, uh, men are smart and trained and women are dumb and untrained. It's not because of that. That's not in verses 13 and 14. 
In verses 13 and 14, it doesn't say, well, it's just because of the particular dynamic you have going on there in Ephesus. Please, brothers and sisters, note the reasons Paul gives in verses 13 and 14. He's going to explain the reasons for the principle in verses 11 and 12. Verse 13 and 14, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I see here two reasons in these two verses. The first reason is the order of creation. For Adam was formed first. The first reason why there should be male authority in the church, and again, I think the same principle transfers over to the home, but what's in view here is the church, is because of the order of creation. Adam, man, was created first and given original authority on earth. And the idea that Adam was created first and Eve came from Adam is important. It's emphasized again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You and I may think of that, well, who cares? What does it matter who was created first? Brothers and sisters, all I have to say is that the Bible makes a significant deal out of this. The Bible makes a significant deal out of the fact That man and woman were created in a different manner than all the other animal creation. That with all the other animal creation, God created a male tiger and a female tiger. A male elephant and a female elephant. A male kangaroo and a female kangaroo. I don't know why I'm only choosing mammals, but you get the idea. But when it came to the creation of man... God deliberately mixed it up. And he mixed it up with a reason that is rich with theological meaning. He created man. And then he later created woman from the man. We have no indication that God did this any other way with any other aspect of his creation. And again, it's part of the emphasis God wanted to place that in some spheres, again, I would stress stress the church and in the home, God says, man has the headship. He's the origin. He's the source. This is something I want respected in this order of authority. The first command that God ever gave to the human race is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says this, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This command was not given to the woman at all. At the time that this command was given, Eve was not yet created from Adam. Therefore, Adam received his command and his authority from God... And Eve received her command and authority from Adam. This is an order of authority that God established back in Eden. So that's the first aspect. The other aspect also goes back to Eden. Here's the second reason. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The second reason is the difference in the sin of Adam and Eve. And it's connected to their difference in authority. Now listen, we know this. Both Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And 
chronologically speaking, Eve sinned first. Yet, isn't it fascinating that the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of the human race? Never. But it always blames Adam. Let me read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world. He didn't say one woman, one person. Through one man. How did sin enter the world? Through Eve? No, through Adam. Adam is responsible for the fall of the human race because there was a difference of authority. Adam had authority that Eve did not have. Catch this. Therefore, he also had responsibility that Eve did not have. Brothers and sisters, God knows what he's doing. God never grants authority without responsibility. And he also never gives responsibility without corresponding authority. Eve was not responsible for the fall of the human race. Adam was. There was this important difference in their authority and responsibility. As well, notice what verse 14 says. That Eve was deceived and Adam was not deceived. Eve was tricked. But Adam sinned knowing exactly what he was doing. Eve's ability to be more readily deceived made her more dangerous in that place of authority. It has been observed, and I can't say that I know this is the reason for God's command, but it has been observed, and I think rightfully so, that women are more spiritually sensitive than men. I would say on general, that's true. Again, we're speaking in generalities. I'm sure it wouldn't take you far to find a man who's more spiritually centered, a certain man than a certain woman. But in general, women are more spiritually sensitive than men. Now, here's the thing. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing as well. I think one, and by no means would I say this is the only, but one of the reasons why God has appointed male authority in the church is because men are more thick-headed. They're less likely to vary. I didn't say they won't vary because, of course, sometimes they do. But less likely to vary from the truth than in general women are. And again, I don't want to say for a moment that's the only reason. I just think that's an additional reason. But significantly, these reasons that Paul gave are not dependent upon culture. They're not dependent upon locality. Those people who say, Paul was a sexist man in a sexist culture, or or this only applied to specific problems in Ephesus, and, and use that thinking to discount what Paul has written here. Listen, I don't think that they're reading what the Holy Spirit says in the sacred scriptures very carefully. He's given us the reasons, and the reasons are rooted back in Genesis. They don't have anything to do with contemporary culture, uh, either in Paul's day or in our own. Now, to conclude the chapter, let's take a look at the one verse that I think is difficult in this passage, verse 15. He concludes by saying, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, this has been a difficulty for many people. And of course, I see the difficulty, don't you? 
From a first reading, you say, well, a godly woman will not die in childbirth, that this is a promise. And of course, we just know throughout history that there have been many godly women who have died in childbirth. In our modern age, it's not so common, but just a few generations ago, it was very common for women to die in childbirth, including some very godly ones. So what, what about this? What's going on here? Is this an absolute promise? Well, what about godly women who have died in childbirth? What about sinful women who have survived childbirth just fine? Well, what's going on here with this? Well, I tell you, this is a little bit difficult interpreting. Some people describe this particular verse as one of the most difficult to understand in the New Testament. I would point you towards something that somebody pointed out to me in the text many years ago. In the original Greek phrasing of verse 15, this is what it says. She will be saved in the childbirth. In other words... There's the definite article, the, before childbirth. It's translated in New King James, childbearing, but it's just the word for childbirth. She will be saved in the childbirth. And the man I heard explain this, I think explain, and to to me, I, I don't know if it's a great answer, but it's the best one I've heard, is that what this really is, is it's Paul's way of referring to the birth of Jesus Messiah, The ultimate childbirth. It's as if Paul's saying this. Even though women were deceived, as he mentioned in the previous verse, and even though they fell into transgression starting with Eve, women can be saved by the Messiah whom a woman brought into the world. God has given to womankind a special blessing and dignity. And by no means is it the only special dignity and blessing that he's given to womankind. But it's a wonderful one. The privilege of bringing the Messiah into the world. She will be saved in the childbirth. The birth of Jesus the Messiah. And and even though the woman race, so to speak, did something bad in the garden by being deceived and falling into transgression, the woman race, again, so to speak, also did something greater in being used by God to bring the Messiah into the world. Again, I, I don't necessarily know if that's a great explanation of this, But it's the best explanation I've come across. The emphasis, I think, should be placed on the last few words of the verse where he says simply this. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Most of all, we should note the positives. These are qualities that God looks for to be evident in women. And that women have effectively nurtured in their children throughout the generations. Now, that's kind of my examination here over the past many minutes. This um, passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. As I told you, I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about how this fits in with the rest of the Bible's teachings. Now, I have to say, this, this sort of review of what the Bible says about men and women in the church, it may be a little bit different than what you've heard before I, I'm a little surprised as I deliver it myself. When you think about it, the Bible strongly presents spiritual leadership in connection with men in the Bible. I mean, look, you just can't get around it. 
God's own gender identification is male. Now, I'm definitely not a guy that speaks about people um, being able to identify their own gender. But if there was ever a being who should be allowed the privilege of identifying his gender, it's God. Because God is neither male or female. Do we understand that? God is God. God objectively, as he reigns in eternity, he is neither male nor female. Therefore, if God chooses to represent himself through a gender, that is rich with theological meaning. And brothers and sisters, overwhelmingly, 99, probably 0.5% of the time, there's a few obscure references where God sort of identifies himself in a somewhat feminine way in the scriptures. But I mean, you're talking about less than 1% of the mentions of God. Overwhelmingly, God represents himself as a male in the scriptures, as father, as son, and even the pronouns referring to the Holy Spirit refer to a he, not an it, not a she. God deliberately has chosen to represent himself as a male spiritual authority to humanity. Even though we recognize theologically God is beyond men, male and female. Now you can't tell me that's meaningless. You can't just say, well, that doesn't mean anything. It's very important. God's covenants throughout the scriptures... His covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, David. They were all made with men. The priesthood of Israel was restricted to men. The kings of Israel were all men, with one exception, the evil queen Athaliah. And I don't think anybody will hold her up as an example. The prophets of Israel were overwhelmingly men. Now, there were some women prophets, no doubt about it. Miriam, Huldah, a few more. There were some definite women prophets, no doubt. But, but if you weigh them by relative numbers, it's a very small percentage. The occasional woman leader appears in the Old Testament. You do have a Deborah coming up every once in a while. You'll have a notable woman leader like a Miriam, even though she got into her own trouble as well. An Esther. But again, the overwhelming, if you just add up the numbers, it's a very small percentage. I can't let this by without noting that the chosen disciples of Jesus and the chosen apostles of Jesus were all men. Now, I say the chosen ones because there were definitely apostles and, excuse me, definitely disciples and followers of Jesus that were women, no doubt about that. But when Jesus chose the 12 and chose the apostles, he deliberately chose. And I I just want you to consider that for a moment that if Jesus intended, forgive my, I don't mean to say this in a mocking way, if Jesus intended to blow the doors off the patriarchy, he could have done it very easily. Choose half women disciples. Choose half, um, you know, women as apostles. But he didn't. 
The leadership of the church in Acts is overwhelmingly male. The addressing of pastoral letters. We have pastoral letters to Timothy, to Titus, and one to Philemon that's not quite a pastor, but we link it in there in some way. Those are letters written to men. When you get into the qualifications of leadership uh, that's in 1 Timothy that we're going to take a look at next week and then later on in the book of Titus, it's written to men. Pastors, elders, bishops, they're all in reference to men. Now there's a possible, I'd say even a probable mention of women deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But that isn't a position of doctrinal authority. That's a position of recognized service, honorable service, honorable and essential unto the Lord, no doubt. But again, not doctrinal leadership. Now, that sounds pretty almost harsh when I put it out that way, doesn't it? But let me say this. Even with all that, the impression of an ancient reader of the Bible would have been surprised, if not shocked, at how the Bible honored women and respected their rights. If you look at how women are often treated in the Muslim world today, that was traditional in Jesus' day. An ancient reader of the Bible would have their mind blown by reading the Bible and seeing that women play a key role in the coming of the Messiah and the salvation of the world. They'd be blown away to see that in the Bible, marriage rights and property rights of women are respected. They'd be blown away to see that in the Bible, if a woman is taken as a prisoner of war, as a slave, she has to be treated honorably and can't just be treated in a dishonorable way. They'd see that God does in fact use women, not normally in positions of spiritual leadership over the broad community, but God definitely uses women. They'd see that Jesus allowed women in the broader company of his disciples, that he taught women, he honored women, he protected women. They would see that God considered women trustworthy messengers of his good news. He'd see that God honored women, both single and married, for their own place in his church. And an ancient reader would be blown away that God specifically says that men or women do not have a higher spiritual status than the other. You know, the initial survey I gave you that talks about, you know, the, the, the male pattern of leadership and authority, that's like, whoa. But from the perspective of an ancient reader, you'd read the Bible and go, I can't believe the honor and the grace and the goodness that it shows towards women. If they think of the notable and honored women just of the New Testament, I'll list off a few of them right here. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, a whole bunch of other Marys in the Gospels. Martha, Joanna, Rhoda, Lydia, Dorcas, Priscilla, Lois, Eunice, Phoebe, Rhoda. Yet, for all those specific names that many of you know, and you go, yeah, honorable, wonderful women in God's work in the New Testament, for all those significant names, we do not see any of them in positions of teaching authority over congregations. You just don't. 
Priscilla in Acts chapter 18 is a marvelous example of this. Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, taught Apollos. It says that they both taught them. And from the way that it words it, it might imply that Priscilla had a leading role in it because her name is mentioned first. They taught Apollos, but it's clearly in the context of one-on-one, not having authority over a congregation. Could Priscilla teach? Yes, but she was not given a position of teaching authority over a congregation. She beautifully exercised her gifts in God-appointed ways, one of them including her and her husband sitting down and teaching Apollos what the Scripture said about the Messiah and the fullness of God's work in him. Now, let me finish with understanding and answering some of the modern objections to Paul's teaching here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and what I see to be consistently God's teaching throughout the scriptures about the emphasis that there's male authority and responsibility, male leadership to be in the church and in the home. What are these objections? Well, let me just say first of all, that the understanding of this that I've just presented to you, um, it's rejected by many people in the body of Christ today. I don't know if it's a minority opinion, my view. I don't know if it's a minority opinion, but I think it's a shrinking opinion. It's getting less and less. More and more people abandon what I think the scriptures say at this particular point. And there are many attempts to explain the idea that the Bible has no specific roles for men or women in either the church or the home. I'm going to go through these quickly because you know how many I'm going to answer? 15 of them. And I just want you to understand, the sheer number of them is significant to me. Do you know why? Because when I see this many it speaks to me of the attitude that kind of says this. Well, we know this is wrong. Let's figure out a reason why. Well, I don't think that's how you really study the Bible. You say, what did the scriptures say? And go from there. But, but to me, it almost smacks, and I, I gotta say, and I, I don't say this, I hope to be mean, but I think that approach is never good to say, well, we know this must be wrong. Let's try to figure out a reason why. No, let the scriptures speak for themselves. And we must always be cautious when there is a great urgency to figure out how the Bible agrees with the spirit of the age. Now, the spirit of our age says no difference in the roles. The spirit of our age says there's no difference between men and women, period. Much less their roles, The spirit of our age says that the only reason you can say a woman can't do something is you're a sexist, you're a misogynist, you hate women. And and you just pretend you believe that's what the Bible says. Brothers, all I can do, and sisters, is say before you in the integrity of my heart, I believe what I believe because I honestly believe the Bible teaches it. And if somebody could show me through the clear teaching of the Bible that I'm wrong, I would agree that I'm wrong. Matter of fact, even though I'm going to go through this list of 15 things pretty quickly, I want you to know I've studied this in great depth. 
Why? If I'm wrong, I want to know it. And I want to read the best arguments from the other side. Bring me your best arguments. I don't want to do battle with straw men and fantasies. If I'm wrong, I want to know it. I'm not afraid of the best arguments on the other side. I welcome them. But when I weigh them on the balances, i got to say, my judgment at this point is that they all lack. So let, let's just go through this list of 15. I, I hope I'm not keeping you too long here this evening. So let, let's talk about these. Um, number one. And now, what I'm going to give you is the assertion of an opponent, and then I'll answer it. Number one, any hierarchy among men and women is the result of the fall and the curse, and the curse is done away with in Jesus. This is a popular way of sort of what they would say dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I want you to understand this. Remember when we talked about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God's order of authority between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was established before the fall. Before the fall. It was not a result of the fall. Eve was created from Adam before the fall. Adam was given the command and Eve received it from Adam before the fall. The reasons Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 2 are reasons that go back to before the fall, not after it. And if this was true, then why is it true that the New Testament doesn't show women in positions of spiritual authority? If this was Jesus' mission to show, hey, I've, I've totally blown the doors off of that, then again, Jesus, why didn't you appoint six female apostles? You could have blown the doors off the patriarchy right then. Number two, equal standing also means equivalent in role. Galatians chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 28, cancels out any idea of there being different roles for men or women in the church or the home. Now, do you know Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? Let me read that verse to you. I'm sorry I don't have it up on the screen, but let me read to you. It's a very important verse and relevant to this. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a very important verse relevant to how God sees people in his kingdom. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Now the problem is, is that some people take this verse to basically be a trump verse. It trumps over every other verse in the New Testament that has to do with male or female. So what they're saying is, look, I don't know what Paul means in 1 Timothy 2, but I know what he means in Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 cancels out 1 Timothy 2, go fish. (laughs) I mean, it's really just that kind of thinking, that that verse just cancels out every other verse. Let me just say, that's not how we rightly divide the word of truth. We don't approach the Bible looking for verses that cancel out other verses. Though, let me say this, sometimes this is specifically stated to be the case, as with animal sacrifice, that is canceled out, but it's specifically described. Our job is to take the biblical information and to rightly divide the word of truth, not to use some verses to cancel out other verses. So I don't cancel out Galatians 3.28. 
Men and women have absolutely the same standing before God. A man isn't more righteous than a woman. A man isn't less righteous than a woman. We're equal before the cross in Jesus Christ. End of story. But that doesn't mean that there's not different roles according to God's administration, according to men and women. The idea that one may be equal in standing, yet being under authority is key to the Bible. And as I said before, it's even reflected in the Godhead. The relationship between the Father and the Son in Jesus' earthly ministry. Number three, and I said we have 15. I shouldn't have told you there was 15 because now you're thinking this is going to take forever, but I'll go a little faster. Number three, Paul was a chauvinist, a misogynist. He said that women shouldn't be elders, bishops, pastors, or have positions of doctrine authority because he hated women. I would just say that's not even worth answering because it denies the inspiration of Scripture. Just move on. If that's really what somebody thinks, I've got much bigger fish to fry with them than the roles of men and women. There's, we need to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Number four, you can't deny somebody's calling. If God calls, who are we to object? Well, I would say this. Ladies, the call to teach, lead, serve, and minister can totally be used and God gives those callings and gifts to women. Just not over a congregation in general. God wants you to use your gifts and use your calling. The only question is, in what sphere? And we have to understand that it's possible for a person to use the idea of calling to justify any kind of unbiblical behavior. Look, the Bible says lots of people are disqualified from leadership. And they can't just say, well, I know I'm disqualified, but I'm called by God. Doesn't work that way. A new convert may still feel called, but again, is not qualified. So those two ideas just don't match. Number five, what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 had only to do with the women of Ephesus of the first century who had their particular issues. Uh, There was a female cult in Ephesus, a lack of training. I would just say simply this. We went through that text in some depth. That's not what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. If it was just a local issue, he would have explained it that way. He gives reasons, and they have nothing to do with either culture or location. And if that was the case, you would expect to see female pastors, bishops, elders in other New Testament churches where they didn't have the problems of Ephesus. You don't see them. Nowhere in the apostolic church. Um, Number six, um, women are leaders just like men. Deborah in the Old Testament is an example of this. I don't know how to say this tenderly. But the rarity of examples like Deborah doesn't argue in favor of women having an equal place. The phenomenon of rare and exceptional leaders like Deborah argues for the fact that those are rare exceptions that God sometimes allows. Not that it's to be his regular order. God's regular order repeated again and again. And I just want you to know... I don't want to get caught up on a rare exception. We're talking about God's regular order. God can and does sometimes use women in wonderful and sometimes unusual ways. 
It's just there's not a practice to be made of it. Number seven, women preach and teach and prophesy in the New Testament. And I can give scriptural references for each one of those. Anything that seems to imply that they cannot must be mistaken. Now, it's true. In Matthew chapter 28, women preached the first good news that Jesus rose from the dead. And that was a significant honor that Jesus gave to the women at the tomb. It's true that Priscilla taught um, Apollos. It's true that in Acts and in Corinthians, we see women prophesying in the church. All of that's true. None of that argues that women should have positions of doctrinal authority and spiritual leadership in the church. We are thrilled when women preach, when women teach, when women prophesy, just as they do it according to God's appointed authority. Number eight, women were among the followers and supporters of Jesus. Amen. May there be more like them. But again, none of those are presented as positions of doctrinal authority or spiritual leadership in the church. Number nine, this one's a little bit obscure. Head only means source and does not carry a sense of authority. This is an argument made from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 14 and the Ephesians passage. I'm not going to get into that, but let me just say In the ancient thinking, head means both source and authority. They don't contradict each other at all. The concepts were directly related in the thinking of the ancient mind. Number 10, again just a little obscure. Junia the apostle was a woman. Romans 16.7. Well, this is a controversial passage because um, there's a mention of a Junia who is of note among the apostles in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Most people agree that Junia there is a man, not a woman. But whether it was a man or a woman, the idea there is that Junia was known to the apostles, not that she or he was an apostle. And I would say this, no matter how somebody approaches Romans 16, 7, if you want to build the case for Um, complete equality of role in ministry uh, in the New Testament and biblical church, that's a very small nail to hang such a large thing upon. Number 11, this is one I hear a lot of today. Hey, nobody should be in charge. We should just all work together. Again, I want to say this delicately, but this is often what those who want to be in charge say. Nobody should be in charge. Listen, of course men and women can, should, and must work together for the good of the kingdom of God. But that doesn't eliminate God's stated order of authority in the home and in the church. Number 12, there are so many different opinions. It's so uncertain that no one can be sure what it should be at all. Well, this is the classic claim of those who stir up controversy. They kick up a bunch of dust and they say, look, there's all this dust. Nobody can see the issue. I would just say this, brothers and sisters, and again, I I don't mean to sound cruel with this, but just to say, 
The scriptures speak. Maybe you don't want to see them or recognize what they say, but they speak. Number 13, you can't disqualify more than 50% of the church from such leadership positions. Well, I can't, but God can. And God actually disqualifies far more than 50% of the church. Because many or most men are not qualified for positions of spiritual leadership and doctrinal authority in the church. So take it up with God. Number 14, you can't prohibit women from preaching the gospel. Amen, hallelujah, and I don't want to. This has nothing to do with positions of doctrinal authority in the church. Woman, if you want to go out and Stern's Wharf and preach the gospel, go for it. You're not taking authority over a congregation. You're not taking spiritual authority. You're proclaiming the gospel. So nobody's even talking about that. Now, the last one I'm going to mention is somewhat different. And I'm going to go over it quickly, even though I could spend a whole evening on this. It's different because at least somewhat, it takes seriously what the Bible says about male headship in the home and the church. It affirms that this is what Jesus taught, and this is what Paul taught, and this is what the apostolic church practiced. Yet, it basically says what Jesus taught, Paul taught, and the early church practice was all an accommodation to patriarchal culture. And God wants us to move beyond that. Here's number 15. The New Testament was written to accommodate patriarchal culture, and now we must move beyond that. The trajectory of God's redemptive movement through the centuries means that such things should change and can change. I could spend a whole evening talking about this. This is kind of the latest and greatest approach. I would just summarize it by saying this. This puts far too little confidence in God's enduring word And it puts too much confidence in the culture. The trajectory of culture hasn't been as good as these people seem to think. And they often will try to make a parallel between this and the ideas of slavery and abolition. I just say the parallel does not fit. Now, let me conclude with this. I put forth what I believe 1 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, you've done an amazing job hanging on through a study that's much longer than I thought it would be. I've explained what 1 Timothy 2 says. I've tried to bring up, at least in some regard, the entire span of the scriptures, both in its assertion of male leadership, but then also its honoring of women. And then finally, I've just very quickly clicked through 15 objections to this teaching. Let me end with this. How should we think of those who believe in women pastors? Women teachers who think that it's a wonderful thing for women to have teaching authority over men. How should we consider those? Because those people are out there in the body of Christ and there are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. How do we regard them? Well, let me give you how I regard them. First of all, they're wrong. (laughs) They're wrong on this point. Now, certainly not, not necessarily stupid or unspiritual, I'm not trying to say that they're dishonest or this or that. I'm just saying, brother, sister, you're wrong on this. I mean, I, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. 
I've studied the other sides exhaustively. As I attempt to the best of my ability to rightly divide the word of truth, I'd say that what I've taught you here this evening is right, and those who believe that women should be pastors and have doctrinal spiritual authority over the body of Christ, they're wrong, they're mistaken. But I don't think they're heretics, at least not on this issue or for this issue. Now, it may be an indication of biblical unfaithfulness in other areas, but not necessarily so. But listen, those who say, well, God doesn't care what people do with their sexuality are often the same ones that say God doesn't care what genders do in the church either. Now, they may have good intentions, but they may very well be influenced by the culture in ways that they themselves can't discern or detect. And I would just simply say, if they carry it out in a church, they're disobedient in church practice in a way that's real and significant. It has consequences. I gotta say, just from my own experience, I've seen this up close just from my time in Sweden. The Church of Sweden, which is a traditionally Lutheran Protestant church, it is well more than 50% of the active pastors are women. Something like 80% of the people in their seminaries and training colleges are women. It's becoming completely feminized, even to the point where one of the significant bishops in the Church of Sweden is not just a woman, but a lesbian. And ladies and gentlemen, you, if, if this was something wonderful that would bring revival to the church, you'd see it breaking out all over the Church of Sweden. But it's not. With pain and respect, it's circling down the drain. The Church of Sweden is irrelevant to the society and declining, declining, declining. I, I think it bears bad fruit. I believe, I can't prove this biblically, but I'll just give you my opinion. Take it for whatever you want. I believe God has implanted something in humanity especially in men, I can't speak so much for you women, but especially in men, we are wired to respect male spiritual authority. That's one of the reasons I believe why God represents himself to us as male, even though he's beyond male and female. And when this is denied and acted against, it has real negative consequences in the church. I got to say, it's even more strange to me when churches say they are doctrinally egalitarian, they have no problem with women pastors, but they only have women preach as a token once or twice a year. That seems like a very strange practice to me. But I'll just say this. It'll never be my practice or the practice of a church I could serve to agree women in positions of pastoral or doctrinal authority. It's not something to excommunicate others over in the larger body of Christ. I'm not going to sniff out women pastors and say, you're not a Christian, you're out of the body of Christ. No, that's between them and God. But I regard this for myself and our congregation as an opportunity to hold on to God's truth and to represent him in love to the community.
So, Father, help us to do that. Thank you, Lord. Um, Lord, I thank you for the remarkable patience of this congregation here tonight. And, um, Father, I just pray for your blessing on us as we go forward. Help, Lord, those who are in authority to represent you in a way that brings you honor and glory, that shows the service, Lord, truly, that's marked by um, honoring you. And we give you our hearts, our lives, and hopefully, Lord, our obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.